0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 41, the book of Acts, chapter 18. Well, we're going to continue in the book of Acts, chapter 18 as we see how Paul continued the expansion of the Yeshua movement into places more and more distant from its birthplace in Judea and in the Galilee. Now in this chapter we are told about Paul being a tent maker. And by the way, the term for his trade in Greek is skenopoius it literally means leather maker and we're going to learn about how his trade helped him to connect with a believing Jewish couple who had recently been expelled from Rome under the edict of Emperor Claudius now the reason for Achilla and Priscilla's expulsion is they were Jews all Jews were ordered to leave Rome around 49 or 50 AD because it seems they constantly fought amongst themselves. And then they persuaded their Gentile neighbors to join into the fray. This sort of civil unrest wasn't tolerated in the Roman Empire and it was dealt with swiftly, harshly. Now, while it's not certain, because the edict of Claudius specifically says that a person named Crestus was the chief instigator of these Roman disturbances. And because the way was also indicated as somehow being the impetus for for this ruckus, it is thought by many Bible scholars that Crestus was not a person living at that time, but rather it was referring to Christ. Not Christ in the flesh, but rather his teachings that of course formed the foundation for the believing community. But this opens another interesting subject that adds to our understanding of Paul, the person, and the way that he was viewed in those days. In the Greco Roman world, manual labor was looked down upon. Work like carpentry, bricklaying, tent making. These were considered menial tasks beneath the station and dignity of Roman citizens. In fact, even the Greek words denoting manual labor long carried with them a rather demeaning flavor. The many minority ethnic groups that helped populate the Roman Empire provided the valuable blue-collar labor needed within Roman society, but at the same time They were looked down upon as ignorant and uncultured people. This explains the interesting backlash that occurred with especially the Christian community that arose after 100 AD because Christianity infused into manual labor an aura of dignity and a good work ethic as a moral virtue. There's a fascinating story about the early church father Augustine chastising some of his monks that were much too idle in his estimation. And he criticized their refusal to get their hands dirty, so to speak. And so he extolled the virtues of hard work and toil. He used Paul as his example so he and others began to see Paul as a good example of living a simple life that refused slothfulness and luxury by means of honest work that involved manual labor well now the irony of this you see is that Paul was born into Jewish aristocracy he was sent to the finest religious school Gamaliel's And then, very quickly afterwards, when we first meet Paul, he began serving not as a humble craftsman, but rather as a sophisticated and intellectual staff member of the Jerusalem Sanhedrin. The status of a tent maker was in conflict with the status of a learned Pharisee and operative of the Jewish high court. It's also not indicative of of his privileged upbringing or of his social station. So how, when, and why did Paul learn the trade of a lowly tent maker? After all, he well knew what being a common laborer meant in the Roman Empire. There's nothing that tells us about how, how all this came about. I think it's somewhat less than speculation to say that he probably did it for two reasons. One, as a means of supporting himself anywhere he happened to be once he became an itinerant teacher of the gospel. And two, it was a means to distance himself from Jewish aristocracy and all the ties he had with the Sanhedrin and instead to align himself with the common Jews who were usually craftsmen. Essentially, not long after his salvation Paul chose not only to identify himself with Christ on a spiritual level but also to identify himself with common folk on a social level. Clearly Paul was going to evangelize enormously more common folk than aristocrats. Now, this is a great lesson for those among us who want to teach and evangelize and lead others. We need to identify with those to whom we speak. We need to refrain from holding ourselves as above and separate Yet, Paul was merely following the example of his master, Yeshua. Yeshua was a carpenter. So far as we know, he continued to be one throughout his adult life and ministry. He didn't present his message to the religious leadership or to the influential, rather, he took it to the everyday Jew. He didn't hang out with the wealthy and then at times go make a speech to the poor. His 12 disciples were the Jewish working class, not the Jewish elite. I'm persuaded that even if by God's will, there may be at times be a different In education and affluence between teacher and student, there does not need to be an intentionally visible difference in class and status. And it is far more sincere and effective if there is not. I know a few wealthy believers who most people would have no idea of their affluence unless they knew them as well as I do. Because these folks don't hold themselves apart from those who God hasn't favored materially. They refuse the most expensive cars and clothing. They shun expensive jewelry and diamond encrusted watches and other obvious symbols of wealth. Rather their attitude is that the less they spend on those kinds of things, the more they can spend to help others and to do God's will in his kingdom they just don't advertise it this is another reason that I like and admire Paul he is not only a man's man he is also indifferent to wealth and prestige oh he was gonna make good use of his Roman citizenship and his elite education but it was to do God's work of spreading the good news as opposed to spending time building bigger barns and enriching himself. He saw it not as demeaning to live among the average workers and to labor with his own hands, but rather he wanted to be near to those that he taught. He wanted to utilize his craft as the means to support himself so that he could accomplish his mission without placing the burden upon others. Paul intentionally remade himself so that he could serve our Lord all the better. And as we read about Paul, we see why early church fathers claimed that heavenly angels honored him and demons trembled at him so that he could honestly say without bragging as he does in Acts 20 verse 34 these same hands served my need and those who were with me let's follow Paul a little bit further on his second missionary journey he's now in Corinth pretty soon he's going to be in Ephesus so turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 18 Acts chapter 18 Eighteen. if you have a complete Jewish Bible it's page 1386 1386 we're going to re- begin reading at verse 4 and go to the end Shaul Paul also began carrying on discussions every Shabbat in the synagogue where he tried to convince both Jews and Greeks but after Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia Shaul felt pressed by the urgency of the message and testified in depth to the Jews that Yeshua is the Messiah however when they set themselves against him and they began hurling insults he shook out his clothes and he said to them your blood be on your own heads for my part I'm clean from now on I'll go to the Gentiles so he left them and he went to the home of a God-fearer named Titius Justus, whose house was right next door to the synagogue. Now Crispus, the president of the synagogue, came to trust in the Lord, along with his whole household. Also many of the Corinthians who heard trusted, and they were immersed. Now one night in a vision, the Lord said to Paul, Don't be afraid, speak right up, don't stop, because I'm with you. No one will succeed in harming you. For I have many people in this city. So Shaul stayed there for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. But when Gallio became the Roman governor of Achea, the unbelieving Jews made a concerted attack on Shaul and they took him to court, saying, this man is trying to persuade people to worship God in ways that violate the Torah. And Shaul was just about to open his mouth. When Gallio said to the Jews, listen you Jews... If this were a case of inflicted injury or some serious crime, I could reasonably be expected to hear you out patiently. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, then you have to deal with it yourselves. I flatly refused to judge such matters. And he had him ejected from the court. They all grabbed Sosthenes, the president of the synagogue, and gave him a beating in full view of the bench, Galio showed no concern whatever. Well Paul remained for some time and then said goodbye to the brothers and he sailed off to Syria after having his hair cut short in Kenchrea because he had taken a vow. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila. They came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he asked uh, but he himself went into the synagogue and he held dialogue with the Jews and when they asked him to stay with them longer he declined. However, in his farewell, he said, God willing, I will come back to you. Then he set sail from Ephesus. Well, after landing in Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem, he greeted the Messianic community, and then he came down to Antioch. He spent some time there, and afterwards he set out and passed systematically through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, Meanwhile, a Jewish man named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent speaker with a thorough knowledge of the Tanakh, the Old Testament. And this man had been, info- had been informed about the way of the Lord, and with great spiritual fervor he spoke, and he taught accurately the facts about Yeshua. But he knew only the immersion of Yohanan, and he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Akela heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God in fuller detail. And when he made plans to cross over into Achea, the brothers encouraged him and they wrote the Talmudim, the disciples there, to welcome him. And on arrival he greatly helped those who through grace had come to trust. For he powerfully, conclusively refuted the unbelieving Jews in public, demonstrating by the Tanakh that Yeshua is the Messiah. Paul, in verse 6, essentially tells those who refuse to listen to him about God's mercy through Yeshua that they're committing self spiritual self-murder, spiritual suicide, and that he's done his part by telling them about the gospel therefore also the consequences of rejecting it so he bears no further responsibility in this matter now folks in reality that's the attitude we are to have we are to speak the truth of the good news to whomever the Lord puts in our path and whatever happens thereafter is between that person and God it's just not up to us whether this person enters the kingdom of God. It's not our failure if they don't and it's not our victory if they do. However, for us to be derelict in our duty to tell others about Yeshua, people that we need, people that we know that need it, we know this, in some ways kind of makes us complicit and their possible destruction well apparently Paul hung in there as long as he could but eventually this rising opposition to his message grew so contentious he had to withdraw from speaking in this particular synagogue in in Corinth seems to have been at least two of them he didn't have far to go to find a new venue to continue his teaching. Right next door to this particular synagogue lived a God-fearing Gentile named Titius Justus who no doubt attended that synagogue and he opened his house to Paul and those who wanted to hear him. But even more interestingly, the leader of this synagogue, Crispus, also came to faith and, as was customary, his entire household followed suit. Now one has to wonder if since the synagogue was so split over this issue of salvation and Yeshua that Christmas was even able to remain as its its president Luke just doesn't tell us one way or the other Now the contentiousness of this situation was obviously of great concern to Paul Yes, he had a number of successes some of which he speaks about in 1 Corinthians At the same time the going it had been rough going it had been pretty rough and no doubt wearying to him so the lord and by the way when it says the lord whether that meant in this case the father or yeshua we're not told the lord comforts and encourages paul by telling him in a vision to go on speaking and preaching because despite all the strong words spoken against him in corinth nobody's going to actually do him any harm and the reason that no harm's going to come is that the Lord says He has many people in this city. I mean, does that mean that these people, whoever they are, are going to protect Paul? Possibly. But I think it also gives Paul a kind of assurance that, that every one of us seeks strength in numbers. Paul isn't alone. There are many like-minded God-fearers and Jews in Corinth that he simply isn't aware of. So this knowledge comforted Paul sufficiently that he stayed in Corinth despite all this opposition for 18 months teaching those who would heed God's word. But then conditions changed. Gallio became the new proconsul. Over the province of Achaia starting in 50 or 51 AD. And he remained in that position for three years. So this gives us a pretty good marker in time to know when this scene is, is actually taking place. The Jews that remained in strong opposition to Paul actually brought a judicial case against him, took him to court. That is, there weren't riots in the streets of Corinth as protest, like we saw in other places that, that Paul went. Rather, there was a well-thought-out attempt by the Jewish community to officially outlaw what Paul was teaching. We see this exact thing in Israel today. Proselytizing Jews in Israel isn't just discouraged, it's illegal. It's punishable with heavy fines, even jail time. The effect of what Proconsul Gallio could decide in this case, and what Israel in modern times has decided, has a profound effect on being able to spread the gospel. It's one thing to battle individuals, it's quite another to battle against official government policy. So, what was the specific charge? against Paul. This is interesting. <clears throat> Verse 13 says this man is trying to persuade people to worship God in ways that violate the law. Our complete Jewish Bible says violate the Torah. But that's a little bit misleading. The Greek word used here is nomos. Actually, it's a form of it, but it's nomos. And it properly translates into English as law. So what law do the Jews claim Paul's violating? Roman law? Or does it mean, like the editor of the complete Jewish Bible inserts, the Torah law? I want you to please pay close attention, since the answer affects how we're going to interpret much much of the New Testament. I have no doubt it means neither of these things. It means halakha, Jewish law. And since these are not terms that most believers are familiar with, except maybe here in Torah class, let me remind you that halakha is a fusion of the Biblical Torah, Jewish tradition, and Jewish customs. The typical term that was used throughout the New Testament, however, is simply the law, nomos. Now, while when used in its most technical, in its original sense, the term the law points to that part of the biblical Torah where the laws of Moses are written down, That was in Paul's day and it remains so to this day no longer what's being referred to except in rare cases. The law, usually and in common everyday speech among Jews meant halakha, Jewish law. And just to make things a little bit more confusing for us the term Torah had also evolved by now to carry a dual meaning. At times, it was used in its technical sense, as meaning the first five books of the Bible. But in its more common usage, it becomes synonymous with Halakha, Jewish law. Now, is this important for the average Bible reader to know? No, it's critical. Absolutely critical. Because Paul uses the term the law over and over again in his epistles. And we need to understand what he means by that. If we don't understand that the vast majority of time, not every time, but the vast majority of time that we see the word law in our New Testaments, that Paul means halakha. And by the way, there is no parallel Greek word for this Hebrew term, and there is no parallel English word either. And only sometimes is he referring to the laws found in the biblical Torah, the laws of Moses, then it can send us down rabbit trails that produce erroneous doctrines that have led Christianity into an underlying anti-Semitism that many believers don't even realize is there but worse all too often due to these misunderstandings by Gentile Christians going all the way back to the early church fathers mainstream church doctrine has Paul declaring that the law of Moses is a bad thing in fact, it was faulty from the beginning. Which God finally acknowledged was doing more harm than good, so he abolished it. That's the way it's framed. Thus, church doctrine literally has Paul disputing against Christ's declaration then we find in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount that the law is not abolished and in fact not the smallest iota of it is going to, incha- going to change until heaven and earth passes away he says which by the way actually occurs and it happens at the end of the thousand year reign of Christ and you can read about it on your own in Revelation 21 so the Jews of Corinth are complaining to proconsul Gallio that Paul is teaching things that violate Jewish law. And verse 14 explains that Paul was just about to say something to defend himself when Gallio turns and says to the accusers that he's not going to even involve himself because from a Roman law standpoint, no crime had been committed, no injury had been caused. So he had better things to do than adjudicate internal Jewish religious fights. And I want you to have... Just give me all your attention for just a couple of minutes here. One of the most common lines of thought in biblical commentary on this passage is that here we see the Jews of Corinth telling Gallio that essentially... What Paul taught wasn't Jewish. Rather, it was Christianity, which they say is a totally separate religion. So, Christianity and Judaism were now, as of this time, different and separate. And while Judaism was legally sanctioned in the Roman Empire, Obviously Christianity was not, and so the Roman proconsul needs to outlaw Paul and his illegal Christianity. That is the common take on this passage. The venerable F.F. Bruce in his commentary on Acts says, The charge which was preferred against Paul before Gallio was that of propagating a new religion. And on that basis forming a society, forming a society not countenanced by Roman law. Not one word in this recorded conversation in Acts between the Jews of Corinth and Galileo remotely implies, let alone addresses such a thing. So why would such an accomplished scholar as F. F. Bruce come to this strained conclusion? Because it's the classic case of Christian biblical apology. It is the standard method of working backwards from an established church doctrine in order to try and find a basis for it in scriptures. That's how it works. And yet, here in the words of the pertinent biblical passage, what do we find? We have the complaining Jew saying outright that Paul, the Jew, was not following Jewish law. Gallio responds straightforwardly, this is entirely about Jewish internal affairs. Roman law has no bearing on it. Right? Folks, there was no such thing as a separate religion called Christianity until well after New Testament times not until about another half century or so from the time of the book of Acts so we can say with certainty that as of 52, maybe 53 AD the time of Acts chapter 18 neither the Jews nor the Romans saw any distinction between the Jews and members of the way they were just different sects of the same religion Judaism Judaism so, why, what, what did these angry, unbelieving Jews do when Gallio refused to address their request? They took another synagogue leader named Sosthenes and they beat him up in full view of Gallio, who expressed no interest in stopping it. The $64,000 question is why was this man beaten? What? He was handy? My opinion is that Sosthenes had allowed Paul to speak in the synagogue and so they blamed him for the schism. Other commentators think that perhaps Sosthenes had actually become a believer although you didn't think that Luke would have said so if that had been the case. That may well be for both reasons. Some of the confusion on this matter comes from the fact that in the first verse of 1 Corinthians we read of Paul addressing his letter as from him and from a fellow named Sosthenes could this be the same Sosthenes head of the synagogue who perhaps fled with Paul after his beating I'd have left or might it be a different Sosthenes now Sosthenes was a reasonably common name and we just don't know the answer to this But before we get on to verse 18, let's pause a moment. More in a moment, really. What we have just read and studied is the condition of the Jewish community in Corinth. We see that not only are unbelieving Jews in a severe rift with believing Jews, but also that the unbelieving Jews were determined to stop any of Paul's teachings from circulating because it affronted their traditions. What we have here is a a volatile situation. Now, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians was written very shortly after he left Corinth and he arrived in Ephesus. So the context of that letter of 1 Corinthians is what we've just read about. Everything he has to say to the believers in Corinth is said with the troubles that Paul experienced and what the believers he's writing to are currently experiencing as the backdrop for that letter. There could be no better time for us to read some of 1 Corinthians is a sort of extension of Acts chapter 18, which is what it is. So, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's on page 1423. 1 Corinthians. We're just going to read a couple of chapters, they're not long. 1 Corinthians page 1423 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. We're going to read chapters 1 and 2. From Shaul, called by God's will to be an emissary of the Messiah Yeshua and from brother Sosthenes, to God's Messianic community in Corinth, Consisting of those who have been set apart by Yeshua the Messiah, called to God to be God's holy people, along with everyone. Uh, everywhere who calls on the name of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah, their Lord as well as ours. Grace to you and shalom from God our Father and the Lord Yeshua the Messiah. I thank my God always for you because of God's love and kindness given to you through the Messiah Yeshua and that you have been enriched by him in so many ways, particularly in power of speech and depth of knowledge. Indeed, the testimony about the Messiah has become firmly established in you so that you're not lacking any spiritual gift. You are eagerly awaiting the revealing of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. He will enable you to hold out until the end and thus be blameless on the day of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. God is trustworthy. It is He who called you into the fellowship with His Son Yeshua the Messiah our Lord. Nevertheless, brothers, I call on you in the name of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah to agree, all of you, in what you say and not to let yourselves remain split up into factions, but be restored to having a common mind and a common purpose. For some of Chloe's people have made it known to me, my brothers, that there are quarrels among you. And I I say this because one of you says, I follow Saul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Kepha, Peter. While still another says, well, I follow the Messiah. Has the Messiah been split into pieces? Was it Shaul, Saul, Paul, who was put to death on a stake for you? Were you immersed into the name of Shaul? I thank God that I didn't immerse any of you except for Crispus and Gaius. Otherwise someone might say that you were indeed immersed into my name. Oh yes, I did also immerse Stephanus and his household. Beyond that, I can't remember whether I immersed anyone else. For the Messiah did not send me to immerse, but to proclaim the good news, and to do it without relying on wisdom that consists of mere rhetoric, so as not to rob the Messiah's execution stake of its power. For the message about the execution stake is nonsense to those in the process of being destroyed to us in the process of being saved it's the power of God indeed the Tanakh says I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and frustrate the intelligence of the intelligent where does that leave the philosopher the Torah teacher or any of today's thinkers hasn't God made this world's wisdom look pretty foolish For God's wisdom ordained that the world, using its own wisdom, would not come to know Him. Therefore, God decided to use the nonsense of what we proclaim as His meaning of saving those who come to trust in it. Precisely because Jews ask for signs, Greeks try to find wisdom, we go on proclaiming a Messiah executed on a stake as a criminal. Now, to Jews, this is an obstacle. To Greeks, it's nonsense. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, this same Messiah is God's power, God's wisdom, for God's nonsense is wiser than humanity's wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than humanity's strength. Just look at it yourselves, brothers. Look at those whom God has called. Not many of you are wise by the world's standards. Not many wield power, boast noble birth. But God chose what the world considers nonsense in order to shame the wise. God chose what the world considers weak in order to shame the strong. God chose what the world looks down upon as common or or, or regards as nothing in order to bring nothing what the world considers important so that no one should boast before God. It is His doing that you are united with the Messiah Yeshua. He has become wisdom for us from God and righteousness and holiness and redemption as well. Therefore, as the Tanakh says, let anyone who wants to boast, boast about Adonai. Chapter 2. Now as for me, brothers, when I arrived among you, it was not with surpassing eloquence or wisdom that I came announcing to you the previously concealed truth about God. For I had decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Yeshua the Messiah and even him only as someone who'd been executed on a stake as a criminal. Also, I myself was with you as somebody weak, nervous, shaking all over with fear. And neither the delivery nor the content of my message relied on compelling words of wisdom, but on a demonstration of the power of the Spirit so that your trust might not rest on human wisdom but on God's power. Yet, there is a wisdom that we are speaking to those who are mature enough for it. But it's not the wisdom of this world or of this world's leaders who are in the process of passing away. On the contrary, we are communicating a secret wisdom from God which has been hidden until now but which before history began God had decreed would bring us glory. Not one of this world's leaders has understood it. Because if they had, they wouldn't have executed the Lord from whom this glory flows. But as the Tanakh says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no one's heart has imagined all the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. It is to us, however, that God has revealed these things. How? Through the Spirit. The Spirit probes all things, even the profoundest depths of God. For who knows the inner workings of a person except the person's own spirit inside of him? So too, no one knows the inner workings of God, except for God's Spirit. Now we have not received the things of the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit of God. God. So that we might understand the things God's given us so freely. These are the things we are talking about when we avoid the manner of speaking that human wisdom would dictate, instead, using a manner of speaking taught by the Spirit, by which we explain things of the Spirit to people who have the Spirit. Now, the natural man does not receive the things from the Spirit of God. To him, they're nonsense. Moreover, he's unable to grasp them because they are evaluated through the Spirit. But the person who has the Spirit can evaluate everything while no one's in a position to evaluate him. For who has known the mind of Adonai? Who will counsel him? But we have the mind of the Messiah. Can you see how this letter must have impacted those people going under such persecution? I want you to just note a few things, though. I have the rubber hit the road here. Notice a few things about the tone and the purpose of this letter. First, it's an us versus them tone. Second, it's meant to encourage the believers that despite all this opposition and all their fellow Jews who are constantly trying to talk them out of their faith in Yeshua they need to stand fast in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 Paul says for the message about the execution stake the cross is nonsense nonsense to those in the process of being destroyed But to us, in the process of being saved, is the power of God. And in the final few verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, Now the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God because to him they're nonsense. Moreover, he is unable to grasp them, but the person who has the Spirit can evaluate everything while no one is in a position to evaluate him and then he ends with the words we have the minds of Messiah so Paul is telling these Corinthian Jewish believers that even though they are under such pressure by the majority of the Jewish religious community that give it up return to the long established accepted halakha Jewish law that it's the believers who have it right And so they should never waver. And the reason they're able to get it, while so many more Jews in Corinth are unable to get it, is because the believers have the Spirit of God in them, while the unbelievers do not. Let me make an application for that for our day. I get literally hundreds of emails and I have many in this congregation as well as out-of-town visitors who ask me why is it that they, we can so plainly see that our Messiah is Jewish? That God continues to love Israel as His firstborn. He hasn't rejected them, replaced them, Israel with the church the Bible is of course a Hebrew document born in a Hebrew culture and that the Torah and the entire Old Testament are as alive and relevant to us as the new when most of their friends and family just can't get it Why does the vast majority of the church not get it either? See, mankind is used to measuring truth and right according to consensus. Are we not? If more people believe differently than what I believe, they must be right, I must be wrong. Paul flatly refuses that notion. He says the consensus of humans is not the measurement of rightness. Rather, the presence of the Holy Spirit and His teaching, that's how rightness is determined. My Hebrew roots and Messianic friends, to use Paul's words and tone we're right, they're wrong. That's what he just said. We're right, they're wrong. The only proper way to not only a right relationship with God but a right approach to living a redeemed life is by returning to a balanced teaching on God's grace along with a renewed devotion to obedience to the Heavenly Father. It takes a lot of courage, fortitude, and faith to swim against the current stream of Christian thinking that anything goes. Truth is whatever you discern it to be, just as long as we love one another. But if Yeshua and His twelve disciples... Twelve ordinary men, if they could do this in the face of being ostracized from their community, threatened with prison, torture, death, can we not stand strong merely in the face of disagreement, mild criticism, perhaps being shunned by a few? Can't we do that? I mean, in fact, I have to conclude. From what we read throughout the Bible, comparing it to actual life experience, that if we are not seen as pariahs to the mainstream religious institutions, we're probably on the wrong side. Luke 14.26 If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his mother, his father, his wife, his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, his own life, he can't be my disciples. Following God and living our lives in the biblically mandated way have consequences. But it also brings us the greatest rewards. Well, verse 18 of Acts 18 says that after the incident with Paul being dragged before Gallio, he continued on in Corinth for a while before leaving for Syria but only after he had his hair cut short for a vow in a place called Kentreia. Now apparently the Jewish couple Aquila and Priscilla agreed to accompany him. No doubt the trip to Syria was to take him full circle back to Antioch and end his second missionary journey there. So what are we to make of this vow that Paul made part of which included ceremonially cutting his hair? Well, first of all, Kenchrea was a port city. It was very near to Corinth. It was where he caught a ship to sail back home. Now, This issue of the haircutting sounds very much like a Nazarite vow that Paul might have undertaken. Now what exactly that vow was, we don't know. Scholars argue fiercely over this verse. Because for one thing, if you look closely at the Nazarite vow as outlined in the Torah, it's hard to see where it fits in this story. The Mishnah has a great deal to say about vows such as the reasons for entering into one and reasons that include like healing and coming home safely from war for wanting a son but it also speaks in detail about the various protocols and the rituals that could be legitimately employed in in making a vow and those things you couldn't do So what we find is that vows were on the one hand seen as something to be wary of but to be honored at all costs. On the other hand, it's clear that vows were popular. They were done regularly such that clear instruction had to be offered about it. So because any kind of detail or nuance is completely lacking about Paul's vow we're not going to speculate too much. But what we can know, however is that this does not precisely follow the Torah law about Nazarite vows. However, it does seem to follow Jewish tradition and custom. Halakha. This fact is significant because it shows Paul continuing to adhere to traditional Judaism as a matter of course. It shows him following Jewish law many years after encountering the risen Messiah on the road to Damascus. Clearly Paul did not find the entire institution of Jewish law, Halakha, as wrong-minded or something to be abandoned upon faith in Christ. And Paul was also not in the process Of moving away from a Jewish identity over to a Christian one. The Jewish Paul was remaining Jewish. Well, the ship he's on makes a port call at Ephesus. And because Ephesus was of a good size, it was pretty big really, it too had a synagogue. There he preached to the Jews about Messiah. Now, nothing is said about his success or failure, only that they hoped he'd stay on longer, so obviously he was far better received in Ephesus than he'd been in Corinth. But his schedule wasn't his own. When the time came for his ship to continue its journey, he'd have to go. Well, it was during this short stay in Ephesus that he wrote his famous letter to the Corinthians that has since become a book of the Bible. However, he promised that it was on God's if it was on God's agenda, he'd come back to Ephesus and he'd teach them more. The ship's destination was the harbor at Caesarea Maritima, taking many of you there. Next week we're going to follow Paul as he first goes to Jerusalem and then north to the synagogue in Antioch that was sponsoring his missionary journeys.